Welcome to Off the Page. I'm your host, Crystal Siracus. Between 1760 and 1860, more than 1.2 million enslaved men, women, and children were sold in the United States. The wealth of a nation was built on the trade of people, of slaves. Yet most of us know very little about these auctions or the people who were sold there. Professor Ann Bailey from Binghamton University is working to change that. Her book, The Weeping Time, tells the story of a specific auction in 1859, but it also examines the trauma that still exists today and the healing that families are finding as they trace their lineage back to the auction block. Professor Bailey joins me today to talk more about this part of our history. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Crystal, for having me on. Looking forward to our conversation. So tell us, um, just give us, I guess, like a quick lesson, what the weeping time refers to. Okay. Well, the weeping time is, first of all, the, the, the words, the weeping time, that was what the enslaved named their experience on the auction block in 1859. Um, uh, when they were sold away from the only place they knew as home, which was a place called Butler Island, which was just right off the Georgia coast. So it's in Georgia. And that's where they had lived for generations. And 400 plus enslaved people were sold on the auction block at a two day event, March 2nd and 3rd, 1859. And this of course is just only a few years before the beginning of the civil war. And their families were split apart. And the, the notion of who, who would get sold with who was very loose because they said they would keep families together, but that didn't mean that they would have uncles or grandparents or you know engaged couples. They would not be kept together. And so the enslaved called this period the weeping time. Was it unusual in that period to have had the same enslaved people for generations on a on a plantation to have built up this kind of community? It was, I think, for this particular plantation, which was owned by Pierce Butler Jr. and previously by his grandfather, um, Pierce Butler, who was, by the way, one of the 55 um, founders, you know, uh, in terms of the constitution. Um, I think it was unusual for them to be split up because th for, the, for the most part, they had not experienced what many enslaved people around the country had experienced, which is that they had could be sold as many as six times in a lifetime. You know, we have records where some were sold. Um, there's one gentleman I'm thinking of in particular who was sold 10 times in his lifetime. So, you know, this process of buying and selling and the movement of enslaved people across the country um, was not unusual, but for this particular community, and this was a rice growing um, industry, it was prim primarily rice and cotton, but rice was the predominant crop. There was some sort of continuity, if you will. And so those enslaved people had the skills, they had the technology to develop um, those plantations to a very high level and made their masters very rich. And so there would not have been as much impetus to sell them away in the way in which there was or sometimes was in other on other plantations. 
Now, you wrote in, in the book that the auction block remains all but forgotten in American history. Why, why is that? <clears throat> I, I try to understand these things. And I mean, I think it's I'm preoccupied with memory. First of all, I'm just preoccupied with what we remember and and what we forget. And I, I the the short answer to that, Crystal, is I I just don't know because, you know, between 1760 and 1860, right, just before the Civil War, there are literally 1.2 million slave sales. Okay, um, that's a, in a hundred year period, and that doesn't speak to the period before that. So we have some documentation to that effect. And you think to yourself with that much economic activity, because that's what it is as well. It's a human story, but it's an economic story. Um, how does that get forgotten? And I, I try to understand it in contemporary terms for those of us, for those of you listening, um, you might have stock in Microsoft or in Apple, or you know maybe your pension is in all, all some of these top AT&T or what have you. And these are these things are being traded every day. These are major parts of our economic system. I can't imagine that 100 years from now, no one's ever heard of Microsoft. You know, no one's ever heard of trading AT&T or trading, you know, on the public forum because these are public activities. <laughs> you know, Apple, can you imagine that? I just, I can't mm -hmm. imagine that. So I'm not absolutely sure, but I think it's really worth thinking about how something that's a mainstay and that was an important part of the economic engine of the United States just got forgotten. Is, is that erasure part of the reason that you chose this particular auction as the focal point for the book? Absolutely, absolutely. That erasure, because I, I'm, I'm preoccupied with the fact that people have forgotten a significant part of our history. And I think when you forget it, both on economic and humanitarian concerns, I think if you, it's not surprising that the level of public knowledge about this history and its impact on the present is not as high as it could be. And in some places and cases, it's just very low. Our, our knowledge about slavery, our understanding about its impact um, on our present day existence is really not very high. And so, yes, that was one of the reasons I wanted a, a great case study. This was this seemed to be an excellent case study, one, because it was the largest slave auction in US history, but also because, as I mentioned, many of these enslaved people had a somewhat settled life. They were, yes, there had been sales, one and two and here, here and there, but it was not, there had never been this large scale selling of this group. Um, you know, which in fact, some observers had called in the, in the parlance of the day, hereditary Negroes, right? Meaning that they had been passed on from one generation to another and um, sadly treated like heirlooms on one end. On one hand, that was terrible, but on another hand, it also meant that they weren't going to be sold, you know, you know willy nilly. And yet, this happened and this happened in 1859 because of the debts that Pierce Butler had, you know, you know, had mounted. He had all these different debts and he, 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 this was his way. This is the only way he thought of to, in order to get himself back to a place of, of leisure, to be a man of leisure again and not a man of debt and bankruptcy. It's interesting um, in my own genealogy research that one of my ancestors was a slave owner. And mm -hmm. you talk about this heirloom 
aspect and there were a copy of his will where he's deeding away people you know and i just don't know that we understand just how transactional exactly. this was exactly. at that time exactly i you know the the, the transactional that's a good word because the, the transactional nature of it is for wills it's wedding gifts an enslaved person can be given to someone and often they were as as a wedding gift if you can imagine right a wedding gift um of a housemaid a house slave what have you um they are collateral for mortgages right and that's the case the famous case now now made famous and i hope for those who are not aware of it you should look it up at georgetown university um, you know, having looked into their records and realized that a period of time they used enslaved peoples as, you know, mortgage collateral. Um, but that was not, you know, we, that we, we, at first when we hear it, we, we are shocked. But if you actually know anything about this, if we actually learned more about this history on a public level, it's not shocking. It was very common. You know, if you're considered chattel or property, then property can be moved in any way in which any other kind of property can be you know, whether it's livestock or whether it's um, a tractor or whether it's a, a precious brace, bracelet or jewelry or what have you, it can be left in a will. So I, I think that was a really interesting re revelation that you came to when in looking at those records. Yeah. Much of, and this is what you wrote in the book too, much of what we know about this particular auction um, is because of a journalist who went by the name of Philander Dostics, I think right. is how you would say it. Mm -hmm. um, and he posed as a buyer and, you know, basically walked around listening, taking notes, and eventually wrote a pamphlet, um, What Became of the Slaves on a Georgia Plantation. Did this account get much attention when it was published? It, it did. It absolutely did. It got republished in London. It got, you know, in, in one at London newspaper. It also republished in different places. Um, eventually was made into like a little mini pamphlet or book. So it did get some attention. I mean, it was it was really from, a, you maybe can appreciate this from a journalistic point of view, it was a very, it was a, it was a very smart and clever move on his part, really, to pose as a buyer. And to, because he was white, of course, he would not have been, you know, whoever he presented himself as or represented himself as, he would have, that would have been accepted. Um, and then he was able to listen in on all those conversations. I mean, it was really journalistic gold. <laughs> you know, he could listen. And the conversations, I tried to capture as much as I could in the book. But frankly, there's so much there. It's, uh, it says so much, not just about the experience of the enslaved on the auction block and what they were experiencing, which is the best of what he shows us. But it also shows us a little bit about the debates at that time on the eve of the Civil War the the ways in which um, people were thinking about slavery and the, the potential for war and the way they thought about black people in general. I mean, it's just, it's a treasure trove. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for that kind of journalistic effort, frankly. Is that when you first learned about this particular auction or how, how did you first learn about the weeping time? Um, I think, you know, there had been, and it must be said, I mean, that there had been other, um, there'd been a couple of other authors, notably Malcolm Bell, um, in, in the book, Five Generations of a Slaveholding Family, that had, you know, touched on this. And 
and there were other there were uh, there was other work on this as well. So it's not as if that was the first time this was discussed. I I cannot say that. Um, it was the first time that a whole book was dedicated to thinking about not just and learning about not just what happened on the auction block, but what that impact was on American society to have auctions be a regular part of life in antebellum America. Um, I think what I try to do with this book is really just to, to, to bring something that was like a marginal footnote type of thing in history. So yes, it was discussed, but bring it from margin to center um, and think about what that means on a number of different levels. And so you'll see that at the end of the book, when I talk about history and memory and this auction and its larger impact, I go wide. So I go from this small one auction experience, which was devastating for the, those people on the auction block to think about what does that mean for American history in general? What does that mean for histories that are similar, which in which there are various crimes against humanity, whether it's the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide or what have you, what does that mean about how society remembers and how society forgets and often how they forget to their peril? And I think that's the word that I want to say. It's not just kind of an academic exercise, you know, why is it that they've forgotten? But when we forget something significant, I think we do it in a way that harms us in the present, in the future. You were part of the 1619 Project, mm -hmm. uh, too, which was published by the New York Times. And you have an essay there that in part, you know, talks about the different auction sites uh, across the country um, and how there are something like 1,800 monuments to the Confederacy. How many of the auction sites are remembered? How many monuments are there to enslaved people? First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that I had that opportunity. I'm thankful that the Times, you know, they were on board to work with me and me working with them on identifying these sites. I'm also thankful that the Harriet Tubman Center here at Binghamton University, that I had, you know, I had these wonderful undergraduates and in a couple of cases, an alum of Binghamton University as research assistants, because, you know, you just do not do this work alone. And we had to comb all kinds of records to see. And I did multiple trips all over the South to see, you know, what existed. And we literally came up with a, a list, a hard list of 30, about 35, approximately 35. So we say kind of under 50 because we say, well, maybe there are a few that we didn't find, but that's, so let's say under 50 that are marked sites where people were sold, where human beings were sold out of, as I mentioned, thousands, you know, of sales, you know, the fact that there are only less than 50 that are marked sites. And to contrast that with the Confederate, with Confederacy and it's what, what feels like until recently, almost like a permanent stamp of, yeah. um, in, you know, in the public sphere. I mean, like, you know, I, I've been surprised that I've gone to places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, you know, there are Confederate memorials there. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I mean, they're just, they're not even in almost, they're not always in logical places either. They could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's how pervasive that phenomenon is, you know. Um, and I, I think if you're interested in equity, and I'm thankful that we seem to be moving in a place of racial reckoning and thinking about what I call the age of repair, age of equity, then you, you've got to see this disparity is something's wrong with that. 
that if in our public sphere we have, you know, the Confederacy looms large, and then those who suffered um, the cruel hand of slavery, uh, particularly where you speak to the auction block, there's there's little, hardly a mention or a small plaque here and there, and mostly no mention at all. Um, that that's something to repair. That's something I'm really hopeful to continue that project at some point and hopeful that we have the support to do it because it would be a larger project to actually identify these other sites that have not been identified. There, there are a couple in particular I wanted to mention. Um, in the essay on the 1619 project site, mm -hmm. you know, there are photographs mm -hmm. and some of them are just like a street corner where something used to be and you've tracked it down. But there was one photograph in particular that really grabbed me. Um, it's on mm -hmm. Cotton Avenue in Macon, yeah. Georgia, and yeah. where enslaved people were sold from uh, the pen of James Dean, who was a major slave trader of the time. Yeah. And there is a monument at that site of a confederate soldier i know I how know. is that not malicious how is that not malicious you know it's funny we didn't you know it was a 16 page article new york times magazine but um february 2020 but we didn't have enough time i had written an actual piece and need to just get that one out separately on the making you know i had actually described that exact what you just what you just said the the phenomenon of that you know, dichotomy of, of having and, and contradiction beyond a contradiction of the very site and place, second continent. I mean, those were, they were slave auction houses all up and down those streets. I mean, they were like shops. It was kind of like going to say downtown, you know, Binghamton or downtown New York or what have you. And you have one shop after another and they have a certain theme you know, there's some there's some shops, for example, in uh, in New York City, I know, where there's a whole street that will be just jewelry shops, one after the other, one after the other, right? And like that's the theme of that road. <laughs> well, this area in Macon, that was exactly what it was, you know, yeah. one after the other. So it's not as if we were even talking about just one. We're talking about several, and several characters who were major players, um, such as Dean, who were major players in the slave trade in Macon no acknowledgement of that at all. Absolutely none. But yet right there, there is that Confederate soldier. That is, I, I, I don't even, what do you, you know, I think it speaks for itself, you know? Yeah, no, it was so, literally. It was a, yeah, it was a moment of pause. It was just like, how, how is this still there? Yeah, yeah. Um, literal, literal erasure. And I, I don't, I don't know how that, and it's right in downtown, it's right near the courthouse. You know, I don't know what that says for that city. I hope for those who are listening that there are people who are, would actively together, democratically come together and decide if that's really what is reflective of Macon today. I don't think so. I don't think that's Macon today. But well, is, is this because we don't know our own history? I think so. I really think fundamentally there is there are two things at work. One, there's the lack of the knowledge. But I also want to say to people so that they don't feel, you know, many educated people sometimes have the reaction of feeling, but hold it, I went to some of the best schools and I had a great education. And right. you know, they almost feel ashamed that they don't know it. And I, the first thing I want to say is, 
there's no room for that. And there's no place for that kind of shame. A systematic erasure has taken place and you have been a victim of that like everybody else. So where would you learn that? You know, and if you were depending on your institutions to teach you this, they systematically did not. Just like that placement of the Confederate statue is there and literally erases, right, um, yeah. the existence of all those, you know, auction houses. Um, it's it's similar. I, I There's no other way to put it, but that it's similar. There has been an erasure in our history books, um, in popular culture, you know, of who, of what really took place during the period of slavery, who was deeply and devastatingly impacted. And there's been this kind of pressure to just move on. Yeah. You know, yeah. Move on. I mean, on, upward and onward. I, I grew up in Texas, um, went to mm -hmm. school in the 80s, um, you know, graduated early 90s. And this wasn't taught. And honestly, I've had conversation conversations with friends in you know the this since then years trying to explain that we were absolutely taught that the civil war was not about slavery that it you know the war of northern aggression that it was about states rights and it it's it's almost like being deprogrammed in a way well, that's interesting that you said that, you know, somebody used a similar term in a conversation I was having with them before, not deep program, but they, they, they talked about on that level, like the level to which, um, and it is an almost cultish level, really. Absolutely. You know, there is, that's the word they use. I'm not my, those are not my words. It was theirs. It was coming from someone, you know, with, with Southern roots and white and so forth and trying to really, I think, wonderfully, and I want to commend you to Crystal, grapple with this history. I think, because that's the other, that's the other reason, right? So there's the systematic erasure from institutions, but there's also on a personal and professional level, denial. There's like this history of denial. And, you know, with everything that we know about mental health these days, and I want to commend our young people who really have gotten us thinking much more and talking about mental health in their generation. And I'm so grateful for that. In no way can denial be a good thing. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I used the term yesterday and I said, you know, what if I go to the doctor and I've been diagnosed and I've been checked and tested and so forth. And it turns out I've got some cancer somewhere, not all over my body, you know, but in a particular place. Would it serve me to go home after that diagnosis and say, no, I don't. No, I don't. Because I don't like the fact that the cancer exists in a part of my body. Now, it doesn't exist in my entire body. I want to make that really clear. There's a cancer in a part of my body. So I, I would think under normal circumstances, there's probably a good chance that there's something that could be done about it. Does it serve me to go home and pretend that nothing, I didn't get that diagnosis, that did not happen, there's nothing happening? Of course not. So I think that history of denial, which is very evident in our in American history, it's very evident. It's, it's scarily evident, I have to say, is something that generations pass on to each other. And, and I feel like breaking that silence is, 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 is going to be very powerful on a number of different levels and very freeing is what I hear from a number of people, frankly. I, I think it's necessary if we're ever going to have a conversation that 
really gets to some sort of reconciliation. I mean, you you touched on this a little bit in the book. If you look at other parts of the world that have, you know, gone through similar, I guess, horrible moments in their history, Germany, for example, sure. um, with the Holocaust, that the the German government and the people have made yeah. a concerted effort to remember this, to remember mm -hmm. the Holocaust, I should say, you know, the different right. memorials, the museums. Right. Um, but we don't have that in America. No, we don't. And I think if there's anything that I am trying to push for, if there's anything, and I'm not alone, there are others, thankfully, on different levels, on not just academically, but on the grassroots level. For example, I, I have to commend, there's a grassroots group in Savannah called the Weeping Time Coalition, and they're trying to imagine with all the attention this has gotten, you can imagine, right? And, and we're very thankful for this. The book has been a part of that. Um, but people will now go to this area and they will, you know, do somewhat of a pilgrimage. You know, they want to go to this place in West Savannah where the people were sold. They want to remember them, you know, either they read a book or they read an article or what have you. And there's all there is is this small marker in a place that's not even directly exactly where it is. And so the Weeping Time Coalition and others and myself and others, we'd like to see a memorial there. We'd like to see a proper memorial there funded in the, at, the, at the best level that it deserves. And part of the reason for this, Crystal, is that when you name your experience, that's a very powerful thing. These were powerless people Right? As far as everybody else was concerned in 1859, they were enslaved. They had no power to decide whether they would stay or go or who they would even be sold with, none of this. And yet they chose to name their experience, to say, this is the weeping time. And I feel like they did it for us, you know, for posterity. They said, I can't do anything about what's happening to me now, but if we name our experience, somebody will come along at some point and acknowledge what we went through, remember what we went through, and, and hopefully, you know, do something for those who are descendants um, of this history, hopefully repair this history in a very practical and loving way. And so I'm, I just think memorials do so much you know, they can, they're not just, they're not superficial, they're not symbolic. They, yes, they can be symbolic alone, but they're not symbolic by themselves. They have a lot of power to remind people of what still needs to be done and what took place in the past. Well, I think, I think we've started to see maybe in the last decade, certainly in the last few years, um, the awareness of what representation means to, right. to different peoples. Um, That's right. mm -hmm. And, you know, having, having that representation of just being acknowledged what your, what your people, what your family has That's gone right. through. That's right. Um, I mean, you talk in, in, in the latter part of the book about the work going on with, with many uh, black families today who are doing genealogy research and who yes. are tracing yes. their family back to the Butler Island to, you know, this auction. And you talked to several of them when doing your research. What was it like for you to hear their stories about finding that connection and being able to, to know that part of their history? 
Well, well, this is this is one of the you know one of the things I'm most grateful for about being a part of this age of repair, you know, as I'm calling it, and being able to talk to descendants, it, the extent to which they want to share their story with me, where I can write about their story and so forth. Um, but mostly, you know, or even when they share it on their own, I just think this is they're amazing group of people. The people who are able in it to my, in my experience, the people who have been able to make those direct connections, um, they have been able to draw power from that. They are truly empowered people. I don't know one that has been able to make those types of connections that are kind of disempowered in our society or disenfranchised. They certainly don't see themselves that way. Um, and and not surprisingly, they're incredibly productive as their ancestors were. They were incredibly productive people. They are real contributors to our modern society, whether they're teachers or public officials or artists or cultural enactors or what have you. Um, and it's, I think they're drawing strength from this. And I, I think, you know, when people think about slavery, particularly for the black population, I think people, some people, even allies are worried that it will make them feel like perpetual victims. I say, no, not at all. You know, the more that you understand in the details, where you've come from, who you are, the, the amount of resilience it took for your ancestors to be able to, you know, to continue to live, make families, and for you now to exist because, because they existed, yeah, is so tremendous. It's 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 such a, you can do nothing but be the best type of tribute to them, that you can be. It's incredibly inspirational. It's more inspirational than watching some superhero film or, you know, some character on TV. It's real. It was in your family. And you're here because of what they did and how they survived. Um, these these descendants, wherever I've met them, almost to a one, they reflect that kind of positivity. And all the more that I want to see more of this work done, not less. Going back to the book, I was fascinated by this section that you wrote about rice, about that the slaves brought over from Africa were the ones that knew how to transform these swamps of Georgia and South Carolina into rice fields, which was a huge crop for Americans. Right. And I, I was thinking while reading this that these slavers, the slave owners, they weren't just taking the physical bodies of people. Right. Um, but to use like a modern term, it was their intellectual property, because if they didn't have the knowledge about how to do all of this, how much of America was built on the intellectual, the knowledge, the generational knowledge Absolutely. of these enslaved people? Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a huge, huge issue. And I definitely try to make that point in the book. I call that chapter more than hands, because, of course, on the slave catalog, the, the auction catalog, it says, you know, half hand, one hand, you know, quarter hand. That just refers to, you know, is, you know, usually age or experience. Um, in terms of what physical productivity that particular enslaved person, you know, could be expected to bring to the plantation. And, and you rightly say, and as I try to really emphasize in the book, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think people of African descent should look back at the period of slavery with any, even an ounce of shame. 
because they literally were more than hands. That intellectual property as you that you speak of made all the difference. You know, you can have people who are physically there, but if they do not know both black and white, and if they do not know how to produce and make that land be productive, um, then there's no wealth to be had. Um, and what you found in that area in the low country, Georgia and elsewhere, South Carolina and elsewhere, what you found is that enslavers over time, they saw that various groups in West Africa and Central Africa had these skills. And they had these skills because they'd been planting rice along riverbanks for literally hundreds of years. And having done so, right, for hundreds of years, that's those skills that's in your head, right? Those are right. skills you don't need to bring implements for that. You just need to know how to do it and what right. you learn from your fathers and your grandfathers and so forth and grandparents and grandmothers. So that's what they brought with them on the Middle Passage journey, just as much as they brought their physical presence and their physical strength. Um, and that's a very... I think that's, you know, going back to the issue of public knowledge, I don't know how much people are aware of, you know, the technology that was brought with enslaved persons to um, the U.S., to the Caribbean. Um, I, I think they just think of it as, you know, strong hands and um, brawn, you know, not brain, not intellect. Um, right. And it's both. It's both. Well, because the line at that time was you know, black people, Negroes were inferior mentally, That's right. you know, so how can you, you can't acknowledge that you need to learn from them and also, you know, say you're inferior. I, I'm glad you mentioned this because that was one of the things and in, in that um, journalistic article by Dostix, and that came out very clearly, you know, the, the common ideas about black people. Um, the typical idea at the time that you know, whites were superior and blacks were inferior and 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 even even this idea too that if they were mixed in any way because obviously some of these populations mixed that you had to be careful with those because those might be more inten intelligent than the ones that were what they call very black you know like that right. that did not seem to be mixed at all. Although so many of the population was mixed that it's kind of a, it's neither here nor there. But anyway, um, the point being that this history, talk about erasure, this history of pseudoscience, um, which was taught in European universities and then eventually in American universities, right? right. For again, hundreds of years, sometimes going back as far as 1300, 1400 in certain major universities in Europe that there was a hierarchy of the races and the, the black race and indigenous peoples were at the very bottom. That was taught as science. And so I have to say this, Crystal, you talk about erasure, like that Confederate statue in the auction houses, this is another piece of serious erasure from a lot of our, of our learning in school. Um, some schools touch on it. So for those who do, please don't think I'm speaking of you, but I think, I know I was, you know, I, I, I went through a lot of school before I even realized that there had been hundreds of years of this, you know, this lie essentially about the races being taught as science. And it does affect everyday people because that's what you hear in the voices right. of people who were the buyers at the auction block. They were talking just like that. 
just like yeah. what they learned, just like what was in popular culture, what they learned at school, or this was the this was the given knowledge. So yes, you know, how could you then acknowledge that these very same people that you put at the bottom actually had, you know, the intellect to contribute to the building up of your modern society and your wealth? It's a contradiction, right? It's a contradiction. So absolutely, this, all this knowledge has to be learned. All of it has to get to go back and unpack it and and not be afraid to look at it because it really helps us to understand where people get these ideas about superiority and inferiority. Well, um, and I was I was just going to say though, this has been taught in our lifetimes. That's true. That's right. It's not that's right. That's right. That's right. It's it, 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 not in so not as plainly taught right. as it was in the, you know, 18th and 19th century, you know, where they literally have the categories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the brain sizes and, you know, the brain size of, of the black and the indigenous person, of course, is smaller, you know, you know, all of that, you know, all of that, which has been disputed by, by serious scientists like um, Stephen Jay Gould, the Harvard right. scientists and the mismeasure of man and others who have totally disputed that. But there are others though, that there's, there's still ways to teach that same lie, um, if you will, that get communicated in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. But you know, what is it, who is it that said, no lie can endure forever. And I, I think that's where we are right now. We're unpacking those lies and we are bringing light to them and helping people to see that even if they think, and they have been thinking along these lines that there really is a hierarchy of races. And we really do. This is the best one is that we have different blood. I love that one. <laughs> oh my God. You know, so that, because we have different blood, I mean, talk about how crazy that is, but that was well, I mean, you see this in some of those auction records too. It's like, you know, that yeah, the difference in the blood. Oh my God. So crazy. We can laugh about it now, but I mean, people honestly believe that. Yeah. Um, and unless you unpack that, you will have people even today still thinking that, you know, that at the end of the day, we are not 99.9%, I think is what it is the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that our skin color and features and so forth are a really teeny weeny small part of what makes us different. So I'm, I, again, I'm grateful for some great people out there doing some, some good work on this. And uh, I, I hope that more of their work will also be read and, and listened to and acknowledged. And thank you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate talking with you too, Crystal. Um, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share with your audience um, some of these issues and hopefully inspire more of this work to be done. That's my hope. Professor Ann Bailey is a writer, historian, and professor of history at Binghamton University. She's the author of African Voices of the Atlantic Slave Trade, Beyond the Silence and the Shame, and The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in the American History. She's also the founding director of the Binghamton University Harriet Tubman Center for the Study of Freedom and Equity. Find out more about her work on her website at wskg.org. Coming up on the next episode, I get to talk with Julie Zikafus, author of Saving Jemima, Life and Love with a Hard Luck Jay. We talk about raising baby birds, raising kids, and how nature is sometimes the refuge we all need. It's a fun conversation, and the book is just fantastic. 
Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you'll be back next time when we go Off the Page.